When Descent was released in March of 1995, it was a technological marvel. You could move with six degrees of freedom, meaning you could move in every which direction. It was in full 3D, a first for any first-person shooter on the market. It was unlike anything else at the time, and everyone wanted to get their hands on it. It also supported many peripherals from the early era of PC gaming, joysticks, flight sticks, game pads, and more peculiarly, two of the earliest VR headsets. Today, we're going to be taking a look back at Descent and the legacy it left behind. As part of the discussion, we'll be learning all about the history of virtual reality and the technologies around it up until this point. So stick around and join us for a stereoscopic trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of our Video Game Nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we take a look back at one title from the current week in gaming history. We try to teach you something about the game and something else from the world around it. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my younger brother, who I think actually likes piloting ships in middle of space, but maybe not in the middle of mines. Anywho, it's my brother and co-host, Rob Casson. So Rob, do you have any desire to become a space miner after this? Well, Dave, luckily I'm already over the age of 18, so I won't be a miner. <laughs> oh, God. I, I can't even believe I walked into that one. <laughs> That's good. I'm not gonna lie, that was good. I uh Yep. I have egg on my face right now. Congratulations. Thank you. I'll be here for the next 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Or so. Yeah. Or so. Maybe more. So what are you up to these days? What you what you been playing for reels? Uh recently started getting back into satisfactory. Yeah, I noticed you were playing that. How's that going? Uh it's going well. You know, we were Attempting to get uh, a new, getting prepared for the new update. Oh, what's what's set for the new update? I was going to ask you if there was a new one. Yes, so I believe it dropped today. Ooh. But um, when I look at the news, update four is now live on experimental. That's what I thought. Ooh, so it's on the experimental. What what does it have? So before you had processed fuel, it was liquid fuel now they actually have uranium and plutonium and actual nuclear power plants like a hadron collider they have hover packs now drones so there's a lot more advanced stuff than what was available with update three they rebalanced nuclear production lines i can see now we have power switches and grids and power storage and a particle accelerator and nitrogen get okay cool and i see drones and drone ports Ooh, yep. drones can fly your resources across the map so that's a way you can transport resources now it and sure is and that's gonna be fun and we have zip lines Ooh, didn't know that hell yeah you, you can attach your zip lines to power lines and zip up and down them as much as you want Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's going to be fun. <clears throat> well, Dave, as much fun as Satisfactory is, I do think there's another game we're supposed to be talking about today. Do we have to? I think we do, Dave. I think we do. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, March 17th, 1995, Descent was released for MS-DOS. And it would later find its way to Macintosh, PlayStation, and later Risk OS, which nobody remembers Risk OS. Never even heard of it. I know. It's a first-person shooter best known for two things. It's the granddaddy of first-person shooter games that use six degrees of freedom in their movement, 
and it was the first first person shooter to feature entirely true 3D graphics. And we're going to jump right in. So the story, and there's not much story to this game, you know, Descent is set in 2169. And it basically begins with, a, I, I don't even know, like a 10 screen briefing between an executive of this corporation and you who are who's known as the, the material defender. Basically, you're a, you're a mercenary uh, hired to eliminate the threat of a mysterious alien computer virus that infects machines and robots that are used for off-world mining operations. So space mining, basically. And 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 off you go, base. You know that that that's it. That's that's your story. That that's <laughs> that's your story. Go go protect our minds from uh, alien computer viruses. So, like we said, to sense a first-person shooter, and it's a shoot 'em up game where you pilot a spaceship through a maze of mines while fighting virus-infected robots. I remember Descent when it first came out. I mean, I had it. It was a shareware game. We've talked about shareware and we talked about Doom. Hey, you want to know something really interesting? What's that, Dave? <laughs> I'm just going right now. I found a binder. Well, I didn't find a binder. I knew it existed, uh, but I, I forgot to look in it. So I have a binder with my CD-ROM collection that I've had for years. And I found CD-ROMs for some games that we've talked about. Like, I found my Diablo, original Diablo disc. I found my Duke Nukem 3D discs. Um, I thought I had a CD version of Descent, but I, I don't. I might have owned it as a floppy disk version because this was originally released on floppy disks. Do I need to explain what floppy disks are? Are we, are, we, are we getting too old there? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, Dave. Yeah, yeah you do. <laughs> So let's jump right in the game and talk about it. You played it, right? That I did. Yeah. So, so you know, normally we save our, our how we feel about things, you know, for the end. But I want to talk about it as we go along. Descent, there's 30 levels in Descent. And it, basically each level is a claustrophobic mine or military installation. And I want to say, I, 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 I worded that very specifically claustrophobic mine would you think would you say that's a fair assessment of the game uh, yeah absolutely i i generally really enjoy playing all the games that we go back and we do you know even like duke nukem had its issues i mean it ages well in some ways it doesn't age any others you know same with doom Doom, well, Doom's still classic. Doom's still good. But for some reason, this game didn't age very well for me. And one of my biggest problems is, is, the, is the movement. Let's talk about Six Degrees of Freedom. Six Degrees of Freedom basically means that you can move in, in every, every axis and rotate on every axis. It's basically, excuse me, you can move in every direction. Uh, we see it more modernly in space sims like elite dangerous uh you play elite dangerous don't you yes i do and, and like star citizen if you guys are into that but it all started back here with a game like descent and i don't know i struggle with six degrees of freedom and i think modern games are a lot more forgiving because now we deal with like it's it's really only seen in really wide open space basically and here in Descent, it's not in wide open space. It's in these labyrinths of tunnels. And it was just uh, confusing. I couldn't wrap my head around it, frankly. You, you, get, you get what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's definitely... It is definitely difficult to maneuver inside of there. Not only just once trying to figure out the controls, but then you take into consideration that you're being shot at and trying to shoot back. And then also trying to go through a labyrinth and not knowing where you're going. It's definitely a lot to handle. And, you know, you're used to playing games like you mentioned, like Elite Dangerous, where you're in an open area. It's a lot of space. And, you know, there's things, obviously, that you can run into, but there is a ton of open space. So you have time to maneuver, time to learn and, and do all that. In this game, you're just immediately in a small and closed space having to figure it out. 
and I re- I remember Descent. I do. I remember when when Descent first came out. You know, and 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 it was exciting. I mean, but that was a time period, honestly, where like a lot of games were exciting. It was technologically we were making leaps and bounds. I think at a, at a rate, and we've talked about this before, but I think that we were technologically making changes and evolving at a rate and in a way that we don't see anymore you know because we we had for, just think you know we went from um doom and this and these were this was all one period so suddenly we were going from 2d graphics to 2.5d graphics and then in the course of a year we had truth a true 3d game that you could move that you could move in all directions. I mean, it was, it was little me was my, my mind was blown, you know, because that there wasn't, there, there wasn't anything like it. Frankly, there isn't anything like it. It's just not, it's not a genre that it's just not a genre that has taken off either. There's not, can you, other than really dangerous star citizen, can you think of a lot of other six degree of freedom games? I mean, there's not a lot of them. I mean, I only know of the ones that you mentioned that I can think off the top of my head. I mean, although squadrons to some, you know, degree, absolutely. I, I mean, is squadrons got full six degrees? Yeah. Yeah. I know the Free Space series had it, and I know there were little odds and ends here and there. Free Space was made by the same guys who made Descent, so it goes without saying. Um, but, you know, it just it was hard there's a it's a fully 3d environment you have six degrees of freedom and the whole time you have to keep keep your orientation about you while working in a fully 3d environment and the thing of it is is i'm thinking about when i played this like back in 1995 all right let me let me take a step back can you imagine so you play elite dangerous we've covered that already and i know that you and i have talked before in that you were interested in getting a dual joystick set up for it or something to that effect, right? Correct. A, a HOTAS, right? Isn't that, wasn't that the theory? Uh, no, it would have been a dual stick combo. It would have been a dual stick combo. Okay, all right. You struggle. So what do you play now? With one stick is how you play it? Correct. And I play mine with my gamepad because that's just that's what I have available to me. Okay? Mm-hmm. We didn't have joysticks or game pads when this game came out. That's not to say they didn't exist, but peripherals like game pad peripherals and joystick peripherals, they weren't common. They were they were the exception to the rule. There weren't many of them. They were complicated to hook up in some ways. Like I I do I remember having them here and there, but it just it wasn't very common to to play games with them. And I'm thinking back to then and I tried to play this game with the keyboard, and that's probably what I don't like so much about it. It 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 it's hard. And like I wanted to play it like a normal shooter, which eventually I set the keys to like the normal WASD, but that's not the default. The default is A is forward, Z is back, and the arrow keys are are whatchamacallit, right? And that was pitch. default. Yep. Right, pitch y'all, all that stuff. Um also, yeah. Star Wars Squadrons is not six degree of freedom. I was wrong. It's been a no, while since I played that. No, it, uh, No Man's Sky isn't either because you can't rotate on one of the axes. Most of them are only five. Um, f- even first person shooters like Call of Duty and that are five degrees. That's what we use most of the time. That six, that six degree is a uh, unicorn. That it is. So, but um. Yeah, like I think about all these games that I used to play back then before game pads were, were really common for PC games. And um, all I have to say for your generation, later gaming generations, is be thankful how plug and play and easy and flip floppy back and forth everything is nowadays, because it, it really wasn't always like that in the beginning. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But otherwise, other than really struggling to move around i don't really feel that it was uh, uh, you know we've talked about the one thing there wasn't much of a story 
and you know um i struggled to get through the labyrinth but otherwise it, it was a good game i mean it looked good it played good for a 1995 game it sounded good um and the weapons i mean it had how, how on would you play an hour or two into it i don't you probably didn't play that much into it did you I had a few hours into it. Yeah, me too. I got a f- few hours into it before I decided I wanted to move, move on to other things. Um, so, I mean, you got spread cannons and fusion cannons and proximity bombs and mega missiles. And um, you got a nice variety of weapons. And as a first person shooter, it played really well, wouldn't you say? I mean, I'm sure that it would have if I had better grasp of the controls but you really struggled with just getting around and so the rest of it wasn't that you know i didn't i didn't really bother to remap it i just kind of dealt with it and made it work so i'm sure that had it remapped it it probably would have been a lot simpler but uh i mean i still a lot of the time had difficulty understanding the primary versus secondary and um like the ammo finding that or shield or just like even just navigating all like just try it took me forever to figure out that you had to shoot doors to open them (laughs) so i just kept flying around in the same spot blowing stuff up and then eventually running out of ammo so i just kept running into them to kill them and i'm like where where am i supposed to go there's nowhere to go i've literally looked in every single hallway what am i missing yeah it's because i didn't know to shoot i was already out of ammo by the time i found my doors i was going to town on the enemies (laughs) so uh but, you know, hey, once once you got the hang of it, it, it played well enough, I'd say. I mean, yeah, uh, it, 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 technologically, this was impressive for its time. You know, they they basically and heck, I've designed, you know, games like this. They, they just took cubes and they stuck them together and they made tunnels out of cubes. It's 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 kind of cool. The guys who made this game and I don't I didn't really stick a lot of development stuff in here this week, but the guys who made this game got their start with Sublogic, which made all of the early flight sim games. Um, Microsoft Flight Sim before it was what what we know today, it was FS1, Microsoft Flight Sim FS1. Um, they worked on FS1 with Sublogic and Sublogic was, you know, all these simulator games and as early back as like 86, I think it was these two guys were, you know, they, 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 they had the idea for this game in which they wanted to basically make a flight simulator, but with, um, um, textured, like textured, uh, graphics. Cause that was what was starting to come as the nineties came, you know, you saw it with doom and all of them. So, um, and, and, you know, they, they went to work for other companies and they shifted around until they found themselves here and just you know they made they made descent work um originally descent was published going to the first the first bit of money that they got to make descent was actually apogee do you remember when we talked about apogee software yes i do they were a you know a big big they were id you know they they did doom they were id's publisher you know and um that's where originally these guys got the money for for this, um, but it took too long and it wasn't to their liking. And so eventually they got cut loose by Apogee because, they, you know, too much money, not no game. And they were picked up by uh, Interplay. And now and now we have Interplay. So who published them? Who would go on to create the Fallout series? A little bit of pedigree here. But yeah, I mean, you know, I I I, sh- I don't know. I struggle with this one. I, I I struggle with this one. I I don't think it aged well. But you know, every time I go back to MS DOS time, I I I remember MS DOS. Like I pulled up the instruction manual, and it cracks me up to go back and remember what things were like. You know, like you have to pop in the disk, and then you have to type this command. You know, hit a colon slash to go to the A drive. Then run this program. And then, like, if you go back to the troubleshooting, the whole back would be like, if you're running a, uh, you know, gateway PC 5800, you're going to have to use this command to shut this part of the computer off or to run it with this, you know, because we didn't have graphics cards or that's the other thing that blows my mind about this time. We didn't have graphics cards back then. They didn't have GPUs that ran 
all the stuff that you know the, all the all those textures and polygons and all the stuff we have now like the game in itself all the graphics all the sound all everything had to just be run on on the CPU and that's what makes at least in my opinion all the games from this era more technologically impressive than anything is because they had to squeeze everything into little like it, it's a lot with a little does that make sense yes it does so obviously we're not very good fans of this game we don't think it aged well but why don't you tell the listeners out there what the game critics thought of this it was received really well when it came out i mean like i said i, I it blew my little mind back in 1995 that would have i would have been 11 you know Metacritic averages the reviews at 8.6 out of 10. GameSpot gives it an 8 out of 10. PC Gamer back then gave it a 96%. PC Magazine gave it 4 out of 5 stars. It was like the top 2 or top 3 best-selling PC game for just about the entire year. It's estimated to have sold over 1 million copies, which is really impressive for a game in 1995. It was... For all purposes, it was a commercial. It was a success. It it did really well, and its sequel was too. Um, you know, Descent Two came out, and technologically, they they improved on everything, and it was a success too. Can't really say the same for the third one, which is really why we don't have Descent anymore. They tried to reboot it. I don't know, uh, somewhere in the 2010s, and it. I mean, they're the. It's a the reboot's a prequel to this one. I haven't played it. It didn't take off. I don't know anyone who's played it. So we didn't like it. But as usual, we want to see how everyone out there feels about it. And so to do so, we like to take your stories or reviews from throughout the web and talk about them. And so as usual, when we have to go back that far, we like to go take a look at mobygames.com. And as usual, we have pulled some reviews from MobyGames.com. And let's dive right into those. Rob, what does Afterburner have to say about Descent? Afterburner says that the true 3D landscape, as opposed to the 2.5D of Doom, was fairly innovative at the time. In my honest opinion, though, it lacked atmosphere. The storyline is uncompelling and isn't nearly as nifty as the invade hell with butt-kicking weapons story of Doom or Doom 2, nor does it have the attitude of Duke Nukem 3D, the other major player of the early FPS days. Largely, Descent just feels sterile. You complete the levels not because they're cool, or because the level draws you into the game, but because it's what you have to do to go to the next level and ultimately finish the game. I mean, we kind of echoed the same thing, didn't we? No story. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Yeah, no story. So Ashley Pomeroy here on Mobile Games says that Descent left me cold, sad to say. A lot of people think it was the bee's knees, but at the time and today, I didn't really appreciate it. Technically, it's very impressive. Proper 3D whizzing around on a 486 is nothing to sniff at, but otherwise, it just doesn't seem to offer much in the way of fun or excitement. Still, lots of people seem to like it, so I assume it's just me. No, Ashley, it's not just you. True, though. Very true. Not too quick on Moby Games goes on to say, In 1994, this game was amazing, and it has aged fairly well over the years. The soundtrack was good in 1994, and it fits the game well. If you are a big shooter fan, this Doom 2 slash Wing Commander game is for you. However, every level is the same. You go to different planets, but nothing truly changes. This brings up lack of interest, and if there's a lack of interest, then there's not gameplay. Very true. And I do have one more. So Timer Gabble here says, as a programmer, I have to appreciate the amazingly fast and complex game engine, which utilizes portals. And portals is basically where it only draws the room you're in. A lot of games use it nowadays. Um, and that, that way, the whole map isn't loaded at one time. And that's how they got this game to do so much with so little. Right? right. Um, so the game ran smooth. Uh, he goes on to say that the game ran smooth on my 386 and perfect on my 486. It looks damn good with a relatively high detail level, texture mapping, and gore shading. I'm impressed. But as a game, I don't like it a great deal. The controls are needlessly complex, the level design is simply not very interesting, and the sound effects are horrible. Most importantly, gameplay. It seems like a decent game, and a lot of people like it, but since I never liked the free space games, I don't like this particular one any more than the others. Now, 
Well, it may sound like I just pulled negative reviews to reflect my own feeling about it. I did not. I tried to find positive reviews, but they're all like this. I think the general consensus of how I feel about it now is probably how a lot of us feel felt about it then. When when it came out, it was it was technologically a jump, right? Because we were in 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 this time period where things were happening and fast. And suddenly we had a game that was actual 3D and that was awesome. And we all jumped on that bandwagon and it was it was cool. I mean, when your your mind is blown by by being in 3D and having all this movement, you tend to forsake or forget or 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 or, or overlook other things, right? Right? Yes. 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 And um and yeah, so that's what we did. But once you're moved back from once you're moved back from from that that aspect, there's just not a lot of game there, honestly. And that that seems to be how a lot of people perceive it to this day. Because it's not like I've been hearing people clamoring for another Descent game. You know what I mean? No, I I don't think I have either. What's the new Descent called? Descent Underground, I think, is what it is. I never even had heard of Descent, so I couldn't tell you. No. So it didn't make very big waves. Anyway, I, I I think this is one of those that people like it through rose tinted glasses and they, I don't know, once the nostalgia wears off, it's just not a lot of game. Technologically, it, it's awesome. One interesting I did, thing I did find, though, was, I, you know, I, I pulled up the instruction. Like I said, I pulled up the instruction book for it. And it was really funny to look at the requirements. So. This game needed an IBM or Tandy 100% compatible. So it had to be IBM compatible with a 386 33 megahertz computer with four megabytes of RAM. Rob, this thing needed 33 megahertz and four megabytes of RAM. Can, can you imagine? No. I know. What, I- it, and that that was its minimum requirements. Its recommended requirements were was a 486 33 megahertz with eight megabytes of RAM. Like, I mean, it's funny because it, when I think about computers back then, like pre Pentium, because this is you know 386 486, and then Pentium came after 486s. Realistically, this is the 4086. Uh, it doesn't matter. Pentiums came afterwards. It's kind of funny to think about this is what we had back then. You know. But that's what makes this so technologically impressive that this game ran on a computer, you know, was wedged into a computer with four megabytes of RAM. And then, you know, it supported various joysticks like the Thrustmaster, Flight Control Stick, FCS, or the Gravis Gamepad. And like we had talked about, joysticks just really weren't a thing back then. I'm sure that this game was probably way more enjoyable to people with joysticks. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I think it definitely was. But one really interesting thing in the instruction manual is the last line of requirements. And on the very last line of requirements, the manual notes that also supports the Forte VFX1 and the Victor Max CyberMax. Now, Rob, you may be asking yourself, what the hell is the Forte VFX1 and the Victor Max CyberMax? Have you ever heard of either of those? Nope, I haven't. Nope, no VFX one, no Cybermax. Nope. How about Not Victor Max? How about Forte? Any of those nope. that know the names, know anything? Nope. Not yeah, yeah. Well, that's going to take us to today's lesson. Ooh, you excited to learn something? Sure am, Dave. These were early VR headsets. And with the Oculus Quest everywhere, PlayStation VR, the Valve Index, so on and so forth, it's really easy to think of VR as one of the latest and greatest new things. But the honest truth is, though, that VR has been around much, much longer. In fact, you know, 1995, here were two of the earliest consumer-based VR headsets, neither one of which were the most popular one. But we're going to cover that because today I'm going to do a quick run-through of the history of virtual reality. Cool? Cool. I know. Don't you love it when I do this stuff? Back in 1938, a guy named Stanley Weinbaum wrote a science fiction story called Pygmalion Spectacles. And in the story, the main character wears a pair of goggles that transports him to a fictional world which simulates his senses and features holographic recordings. And that's the earliest basic literal like literature notice, you know, 
where we get any semblance of this. And I put that in there because I think it's really fascinating that back in 1938, there was this, you know, guy who who basically nailed it on the head. Right. Right. But the first VR machine wouldn't come to us until 1962, roughly. Uh, in 1962, a cinematographer, Morton Heilig, created what he called Sensorama. And it was a large booth that could fit up to four people at a time. And what it did is it combined multiple technologies to simulate all the senses. So there was full-color 3D audio, video, vibration, smell, and atmospheric effects such as wind. I do believe we have that as zoos and aquariums and, and stuff now. We call that 4D, actually, right? You ever been to a 4D movie? Have? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I have. The IMAX, yeah. Disney, the ones in Disney where you get like squirted with water. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, those are 40. Yeah, that's that's uh, 40. Well, it started way back in 1962. And uh, so all these things that Heilig put together were like scent producers, a vibrating chair, stereo speakers and a stereoscopic 3D screen. And he thought that he was creating the cinema of the future where he wanted to fully immerse people in their films. And he, he made about six short films for the Sensorama. And like I said, that was patented in 1962, about the same time in 1960, 61. He he, he created the Telesphere Max, Telesphere Mask, which was the first head mounted display or what we're going to call HMD after this. And what that did was it provided stereoscopic 3D images with with wide vision stereo sound. Um, but we didn't have head tracking yet. Head tracking would come later in another year, 1961. The first device that had head tracking was a head-mounted display which had built-in video screens on each eye and a head tracking system, but it wasn't used for virtual reality. It was made for the military to allow them to remotely look at hazardous situations. So basically, they got to look through a remote camera that followed their head movements so they could look around in hazardous situations. Hmm. Right? Kind of cool. 1961. In 1965, there was a a scholar named Ivan Sutherland, and he presented his vision of the ultimate display. It was a concept in which a virtual world is viewed through a head-mounted display, which replicated reality so well that the user wouldn't be able to tell the difference from actual reality. And and in his in his mind, this included being able to interact with objects. Now, this sounds more like modern VR, does it not? That it does. Yeah. So this paper he wrote of the ultimate display is really seen historically as the modern blueprint for VR. A few years later, in 1968, uh, Ivan Sutherland would create the first actual virtual reality head-mounted device, and it was called the Sword of Damocles. It was this really huge head-mounted display that connected to a computer, but all it could show was simple virtual wireframe shapes. But as the user moved their head their perspective on the wireframe shapes would move accordingly with how they moved their head. They didn't do much with it. It was confined to a lab because it was large and cumbersome. And it was literally something like you'd see out of science fiction movie with wires and stuff, you know, coming from the ceiling and really users couldn't move because it was just big and bulky. You know, you know it. Yeah. It really looked like something out of a sci-fi movie. But as this was happening, VR was largely being developed as a military technology, you know. In 1966, Thomas Furness created the first flight simulator for the Air Force. It wasn't based in VR initially, but it's an important moment because as the military pushed for better flight simulators, it provided a lot of the funding for early VR research and development. In 1972, GE built a computerized flight simulator that featured a 180-degree field of vision, by using three screens surrounding the cockpit. Now that's pretty common nowadays, right? Multi, multi, multi-screen setups and a lot of flight simulator or space simulator displays. Won't you see the two and three screen field of views? Yeah, so that's very common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it started in 1972. Thanks, General Electric. Heck yeah. <laughs> in 1979, uh, McDonnell Douglas integrated VR into its own head-mounted display. It was something that it called the Vital Helmet. And this helmet used head tracking that followed the pilot's eye movements to match computer-generated images. And all this technology would come together and be put together as flight simulators progressed. In 1986, the same guy that created the first flight simulator back in the 60s, Thomas Furness, would create a... uh, a He would basically start in the late 80s development on what became known as the Super Cockpit. And he worked on it between 86 and 89. And basically what, what he was able to come with, up with with the technology that had progressed all this time 
was a training cockpit that featured computer-generated 3D maps, advanced infrared and radar imagery, so the pilot could see and hear in real time. And in this cockpit, the pilots wore a helmet, and the helmet had head tracking and had sensors. And basically, with all the all the head tra- all the the sensors and everything, it allowed pilots to control the aircraft using gestures, speech, and eye movements. Thank you, military, for pushing a lot of that forward. Rob, you ever had Ooh. the <laughs> have you ever had the pleasure of of like being in an actual flight simulator? I have not. No, I mean the closest I've been is you know one of the uh, very similar to one it, in the. I want to say it's the Smithsonian Air Force Museum, the Smithsonian Air. I believe there was some uh, you know one that you could strap into there, and it would do like certain like it would actually like roll you upside down. But obviously, it didn't have like the full degree of motion and all of that and it was right yeah but i've never actually although i have you know helped with purchasing equipment for coletta air for one of their air simulators i haven't myself been inside of one cool so as the military was working on as the military was working on all these updates on you know for their purposes in colleges and schools and laboratories and and tech companies across the nation in the 80s, the same technology was being refined in different ways. For instance, in 1980, a company called Stereo Graphics created Stereo Vision Glasses. This was kind of the beginning of where we we could make this smaller and more manageable. In 1982, uh, something called Sayer Gloves were created. These were the first wired gloves, and basically what they did as they monitor hand movements by using light emitters and photocells in the fingers. So when the users moved their fingers, the amount of light hitting the photocell varied, and that converted finger movements into electrical signals that the computer understood. And this is the earliest time that we know of gesture recognition, which is, which is pretty common. Well, it's a staple of VR nowadays. In 1985, a company was founded called VPL Research, uh, they're they're known as the first company that sold VR goggles and gloves, and they made a whole range of VR equipment. There's stuff called the Data Glove, a uh, head-mounted device ca- called the iPhone. No, no pun intended. It's I E Y E, called the iPhone HMD. Which the irony of that is, we're probably going to have an actual iPhone HMD someday. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, no, probably will. An Apple iPhone HMD for those not in on the joke. Um, and they made a little audio sphere. There, were, there was a whole lot of stuff. What was most important, though, about VPL research is that th- they're credited with popularizing the term virtual reality between all the equipment and stuff they worked on. It stuck with these guys. Because for the first time, you had a company that was actually selling selling these products. You know, it became a, it, when VPL research started to do started to do this, it became a tangible product that people people could invest in. Right. This kind of came to a head in 1990. In, the, in 1990, there was a company called the Virtuality Group that produced a series of virtual reality machines that were found in video arcades through the early 90s. I remember, I remember these machines. I, I, it's my early VR stuff, too. Virtuality machines were sold both as sit-down and stand-up pods. I specifically remember playing the stand-up ones. And they would allow people to play virtual reality games wearing a visor while using joysticks. I think the first time I ever got to do this was at Cedar Point. I believe for a while Cedar Point had stand-up virtuality machines, and I I remember going there once and getting to getting to play. I th- I think that's where it is. You know how those memories all go together. There was the one at the not David was it David Buster's? David Buster's we is to- relatively new, so. Oh, you're saying as a kid when you did that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. We may have played one more recently. That's what I was trying to say. I remember there was the one stand-up one when we went. It was like at a restaurant. Like when you took me, it was like at a full motion 3D race simulator. Would that have been not Dave and Buster's, but that one that was in what's that mall out in Auburn Hills? Great Lakes Crossing. Yeah, wasn't there a, a, a there when that when Great Lakes Crossing first opened? 
there was a restaurant that's a gaming thing in there that was like three floors. It was huge. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And it did have an actual 3D right in the middle, a huge 3D machine in the middle there. So what the hell was that place called? Is it still there? I, I honestly don't recall. I, I know they have an arcade out there, but I don't believe it's the same thing. God, I wish I remembered what that was. That thing was kind of cool. Um, It was a huge arcade. It wasn't a Dave and Buster's, though, but it was it was something along those lines. Maybe it was. I don't know. Anyway, I also remember. I, I remember another time that I got to play VR in the midst here. Once upon a time, I took CAD classes. That's right. I took AutoCAD classes at TACOM. This is before 9-11 and, and locking down military installations and all that. They would offer after school programs. TACOM, I don't even think it owns by the military anymore. Isn't it now private, TACOM? Um, I actually think it's still military. No, TACOM is still military. Okay, so TACOM is a, a military base in the, the city that we, we, we grew up in. It's called TACOM because it was the facility that built, I think it built the most tanks during World War II production-wise out of any others. It was more of a technological complex as, as I got older. And once upon a time, it used to have extracurricular programs where you could sign up for classes for various technological things. And I took CAD classes at TACOM when I early, it may have been late middle school, early high school. So this this would have been like, 98 99 maybe 2000 they had the military side of this virtual reality stuff in there uh and we got to play with it like once i took i took classes for like a year or two and like one day happenstance they took us to the vr where this vr stuff was in the building and we all got to goof around with it and it was awesome i just remember it being awesome but these virtual virtual. Do you remember anywhere else that you got to play VR before I go on uh, Best Buy once? <laughs> no, I, I didn't do a whole lot with VR. In all hmm. honesty, I still haven't to this day. Hmm. So these virtuality machines, uh, there weren't a whole lot of games for it. The, the first generation of games had this game called Dactyl Nightmare, which was like a pair, a pterodactyl enemy shooter game. There was a, a robot shoot 'em up called Gridbusters. There was a puzzle game called Hero and a fantasy game called Legend Quest. A later version would add a space battle game called Battlespear, a Harrier jump jet simulator called VTOL, because that's what the, they're called, a dogfight simulator called Flying Aces, and a stock car racing simulator called Total Destruction. Chances are Total Destruction is what I played, because, you know, I think as I can speak for both of us, we're suckers for racing simulators. And then there was a third generation of them that had another Dactyl Nightmare, a buggy ball. But probably the most unique thing about virtuality machines is that towards the end of their popularity, they licensed a game from Namco and made Pac-Man VR. So there was a first person version of Pac-Man that was like done on these machines. And frankly, I wish I could find it. I, I didn't dig that far. You could probably find it. But that just fascinates me to no end, to be honest with you. What, what do you think about Pac-Man VR, Rob? Uh, that's definitely something else, Dave. I didn't know that was actually a thing. I know. I didn't know that was actually a thing either. It 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 always surprises me. So as Virtuality came out uh, a year later in 1991, Sega would start development on their own VR system for the Sega Genesis. Yes, I'm, I'm saying that right. Uh, Sega wanted to make a VR headset for the Sega Genesis. And to put into perspective, Virtuality pods at the time were said to be, you know, $70,000 in $1990. And Sega, set, Sega sought out to make a VR peripheral headset with a $200 price point. And by all accounts they were they were doing okay. They they licensed some really great technology from, you know, the, from some really innovative companies that were trying to do stuff in this in this in this field and uh, all accounts say that, that they, they were getting somewhere with it. However, as they worked through development though, they weren't getting good feedback from test groups. Motion sickness and nausea are still issues with VR to this day. But nowadays, the fidelity of the screens is more natural and realistic. And back then, the resolutions were so low and fuzzy that it just it compounded these issues. 
they were just they were worried about the fallout of of putting out a headset that was making children sick and giving them headaches. And, and I, I mean, I can understand that. Can't you? Absolutely. You know, in 93, they came out saying they were going to make this. But by mid 94, any talk of this was gone. I mean, it, it like the, the home version of it fell off the freaking map. They they didn't waste it, though. You know, uh, for I, we've talked about it, but Sega was really big into arcade machines and all the work that they put into this technology to make it work. They were able to integrate into their own VR machines, which is called the VR one uh, platform uh, by the end of 1994. So their their work on the Sega VR got integrated onto their arcade end, but it never it never materialized and never materialized on the home console end. Rob, can you wrap your head around a Sega VR? Uh, no, I can't. No, you don't think that would have been fun at all? I mean, I really can only recall playing one game on the Sega. I didn't have one. We, we didn't have one growing up. Um, so I only had the chance to play one at a friend's house. And, you know, I mean, it was a cool game, but I, I don't think it would have been much great, much better of a game in 3D or VR rather. Right, right. Well, so this is the point in VR history where Victor Max comes in. As Sony was developing the VR, there was a company called Future Vision Technologies. It was a bunch of guys that worked at, I can't remember, a college somewhere that made this company that wanted to develop their own headset. Their first headset was called the Stuntmaster. It was a headset that was designed to be compatible with the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. And even though the Sega VR never materialized, the Stuntmaster was originally released in August of 1993 at a cost of $219. And this is, honestly, it's the first consumer-grade VR headset to be released for any platform whatsoever. So our first technical consumer headset for VR we got way back in 1993. Did you ever know it came that early? I did not know. Thought it was a new thing, huh? Huh? Sure did. As... Victor Max was creating, you know, talking up and everything alongside the Sega VR. You know, Sega VR was supposed to come with one game. The Stuntmaster was said to come with two games, and it ended up not coming with any. Also, it wasn't a stereoscopic headset display. It was monoscopic, and, and it had issues. It was hard to configure. It had low resolution, so it was blurry for most people. And even worse... August of 93 is when Sega, not August, but that summer of 93 is when Sega announced a new version of the Sega Genesis. And it was basically a, a cost effective revision. It's called the Sega Genesis Model 2. And the port that the Stuntmaster used to connect to the Genesis consoles was eliminated from the Model 2 version because there weren't really any popular peripherals that used it. And so, you know. Even though it worked with the SNES and the Genesis, when when the Stuntmaster, when Genesis, when the Genesis lost that port, they lost a large basis of their of their player base, and and it just it it never took off. It really never took off. And so we're rounding to Ben, right? In 1994, Victor Max would create a follow up, uh, which was called the Cyber Max, which is what's in the manual of Descent. And the Cybermax, basically after having no success with the consoles, uh, Victor Max decided they were going to focus on the PC side of the business. And so the Cybermax had a dual display. So we got we got actual 3D, stereoscopic 3D, and it worked with PCs at a cost of $699. So now we have a $700 peripheral that uh, could do 3D. Later, about a year later, there was a company called Virtual IO that released a headset called the Virtual Eyeglasses, and this would become the most successful VR headset on the market. Basically, it was $499. It had better pixel density. It had head tracking. It had a lot of really great features, and it would become the most popular selling VR headset of, of the early ones. And so in response... Victor Max made similar improvements to their machine with the pixel density and the head tracking. But now with the price of their technology was it made it $899. And frankly, a $900 VR headset back then couldn't compete with a $500 headset that that performed virtually the same. You know what I mean? Absolutely, Dave. And then mixed in there was the other one that the manual talks about, which was the Forte VFX one. 
it released with an average retail price of five ninety nine. And while it, it it made a little bit of tread, nothing could really compete with the 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 virtual eyeglasses. And that's all of the early um that's all the early VR. You know, the other thing special part about 1995 because we've talked about it before uh, was the Virtual Boy. The Virtual Boy console was released in 95. You know, Nintendo's Virtual Console. That one I do know about. I think though, I I, I think though, I would rather talk. We're going to talk about that one in itself someday. So I don't have anything really prepared for that for today. But we had these early VR headsets, and it never really took off. And while there are some ones that are mixed in the middle, it was really a niche product category. You know what I mean? Games weren't being developed for it. Movies weren't being developed for it. And they didn't really know what to do. You know, like like the virtual eyeglasses and the Cybermax 2 could hook up to a TV and become like a theater TV like VR can nowadays, you know. And so there was this weird thing where they were they didn't know the market it to the gaming audience, the TV audience. Like they weren't sure where to go and what to do, and and it just it, ne- it never took off back then. And and frankly, VR VR kind of became a, a novelty. You know, a few headsets here and there, and and we talked about our experience with it in arcades later on. And it, it didn't do much until about what where we are now 20, 2012. 2012 is when VR made a resurgence again. Because it was in 2012 that there was a Kickstarter started for the Oculus Rift, and and here here we are. It took off, and, and then we got the Oculus, and we got the Samsung, and we got the what's the what are all the other ones? The Valve Index and PlayStation VR, and frankly, frankly, VR is pretty amazing nowadays. If you've never, if you've never tried it, it's a really good time to get into it. It's a really good time to get into it. We have a super good consumer-based VR headset in the Oculus Quest 2, which is $300, that does it all. It, it, it's an untethered VR headset that has great head tracking and six degree of freedom controllers, funny enough, and um, all that jazz. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Have you tried the, any of the Oculus line yet? I have not, no. None of your friends have them or anything? No, none of my friends. Actually, I have one friend who just got one, but not someone I really hang out with. So, you know, I've just watched streaming, but I haven't uh, actually gotten to use it. It's it's not the same to watch it. it oh, is, I'm sure. It is seriously impressive. It It is. Look, I mean, we've done the gaming. We've done the the car simulators. I, you know, I got to play with it as and those cheesy virtual consoles from the early 90s and everything. And so, like. In my mind, going into modern, the head tracking is good. Like it is, it, you see all the videos about people like walking into walls and and hitting and tripping and falling. Like it is so easy to get lost in modern VR because it is just spot freaking on. Fair warning: if you're playing VR, you need a lot of space. But yeah, try it. Try some VR, and that's that's how we got to modern VR in in a nutshell. A lot of a lot of military progression technology, but the military pushes forward a lot of technology. A lot of smart people in colleges and companies across the nation, and uh, and we got there. Can you imagine playing Descent in a VR headset? Do you think that'd be? Uh, no, I would get way too dizzy. Yeah, I think that'd be double weird. So back to Descent for a brief moment, about to wrap up today's episode. Well, no, we still have a gaming question, but I'm going to go really quickly. So like we talked about in the beginning, Descent has six degrees of freedom. It's the first full 3D first person shooter. But I think for me, what Descent gave to 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 the gaming, to, to gaming as a whole was really what its companies became because the pedigree of its studio and employees would go on to do this and employees would go on to do that. You know, Descent was published or developed rather by Parallax Software. In 96, Parallax became two companies. One half was Outrage Entertainment, which did the third Descent, and the other half became Volition. Rob, do you know what Volition, Volition still exists nowadays? Do you know what it's known for nowadays? Hmm. Can't say that I do, Dave. Volition makes the Saints Row series. Oh, that that would be why it sounded familiar. I just and and, and and Red Faction. You ever played a Red Faction game? 
I have not. Red factions are fun. But yeah, I mean, you know, they would Volition would go on to work on Free Space, which is kind of a spiritual successor space combat type game to to this. But more modern, you know, they picked up Red Faction and and now they they almost work exclusively on Saints Row. So and like I said, the publisher Interplay is best known for creating the Fallout series and for publishing the Baldur's Gate games. I'm trying to think of other games. I know it did Earthworm Jim. I can't think of any others. Did you ever play an Earthworm Jim game? I have, yes. Gotcha. One on PlayStation. Did they make it on PlayStation? Maybe it wasn't PlayStation. I thought they made I thought they made them all for the SNES. So, yeah, no, it was on the Nintendo. You're right. The Super Nintendo. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of funny because we did the same thing when we talked about Apogee. All these early gaming companies that made that really pushed the envelope and technologically pushed our industry forward. It's really impressive because of the way studios fall to the wayside that so many of them still exist today. And, and it's fun to me to trace what I like. It's like a lineage. It's like tracing your family tree. We can trace game development lineages. You know, Saints Row, Saints Row the Four with the big giant purple dildo that we talked about. You can trace it all the way back to Descent. Actually, you can trace it farther because the guys that created Descent went all the way back to create Sublogic in Microsoft Flight Simulator 1. So you can actually pretty much trans push this volition all the way back to the 80s early 80s it's kind of cool huh that it is so but that's really all i have to say about descent it didn't age well for me and 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 that's okay it was a technological marvel um but it did give me an excuse to talk about vr and and a lot of history which was a lot of fun anything you want to add to the descent talk you know we might not like the game might be one perfect for you definitely something that you want to give a try and see for yourself see Maybe it's something you loved as a kid and you think, hey, you guys suck. You, your, your opinion is bad. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I just couldn't get into the game. But yeah. definitely got to say, as always, give it a try. You never know what you might like. Right on. Right on. Well, I'm going to move right into the gaming question of the week because we're running right into the hour now. So, Rob, this got me thinking, is there a game that's considered to be really bad, but secretly is your guilty pleasure? I mean, I suppose a lot of people would consider RuneScape to be bad. You th- yeah, you think so? I, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, you have the people who are nostalgic to it and, and really into it, but then there are others who are like, it's just grind simulator. And now, I mean, it absolutely is. But, you know, I play the hell out of it. Right well, on. I, should, yeah. I, I, I play a good amount of it, especially while we do these recordings. That you do, you little shit. <laughs> I don't know if I have a certain game, but I will tell you that I will play any idle clicking game out there, no matter how bad it is. And a lot of them are really bad, but there's something about that gameplay loop for me. The um, and, you know, you know what games I'm talking about, don't you click like the clicking genre or the like egg incorporated or junkyard simulator where you like not an idle not just click but idle too where you it runs and you earn money and you use that money to upgrade your stuff to earn more money and it's just a constant loop where you do that there's really no end to it you yeah, play any of those yeah I, I had quite a few on my phone at one time yeah i have quite a few on my phone i will literally play just about any of them and most of them are really really bad but i secretly like all of them so and most of like not most of, but a lot of designs I have for games are usually like idle games too, like the ones I got stuck in my head that someday I'll finally get around to developing. That's my jam, though. That's my jam. That's it. Idle clickers. Not really one game, but a genre of uh, of games. Speaking of games, we cover a new one every week. If you're curious about what what other games we've ever covered, uh, where might someone find that information, Rob? Well, Dave. To find some of that information, you can head on over to www.memorycardlane.com. Oh, yeah. There you can find old episodes, show notes, some information about Dave and I, calendar with our upcoming shows, links to our Patreon. Dave, what's on over at the Patreon? Uh, you can support our little podcast for $2 a month. It, it, that That's it. Pretty plain, pretty simple. If you like what you hear, 
bought us some money to to pay for hosting. That's that's really about all all we spend money on right now. Um, right you are, Dave. And also there, you can find our social media information. Dave, what do you do on social media? I'm on Twitter. David underscore is underscore wrong. I say happy birthday to video games, post about Rocket League and other weird assorted stuff. Uh, what about you, Rob? I can be found on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Awesome. Well, I think that will about do it for today's episode. I have said everything I'd like to say and probably then some because y'all are getting real tired of me. Rob, what do you have to add before we take it out of here? Uh, as always, I just want to say thank you for listening. It's been a fun ride and we hope to continue being a fun ride down the road. So join us and let us know what you think. Reach out to us. Just let us know you're there. Sometimes it's nice to get a call back when you call out. Other <laughs> times tr- it's terrifying. That's very true. Very, and speaking very of true. terrifying, Dave, next week, I believe we're going to be taking a look back at a game that defined the survival horror genre, the game by which all other survival horror games are held up against. Isn't that right? That is very true. That was a damn good transition. I'm I'm impressed. So originally released in 1996 for the original PlayStation, Resident Evil began a franchise that now has countless games, movies, books, comics, and soon to be a television show. There's a whole lot to delve into, and next week we're going to jump right into it. So, short and sweet, join us again next week as we look at the original Biohazard in another trip down memory card lane. The thing.